Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I'm speaking to you from number 17 Belgrave Square, the headquarters of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and I'm joined here by Dr Leonie Boeing, a consultant psychiatrist based at St John's Hospital in the West Lothian District in Scotland. Leonie Boeing is a child and adolescent consultant psychiatrist, and she's published a very interesting paper on adult-onset psychosis in the January edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry. But first things first, Leonie, many people would consider adolescence to be a very stressful time. So they would expect there to be a very high rate of psychosis uh, at this particular time of people's lives. Previous studies would suggest that actually the rate of early onset, as we would call it, so onset before the 18th birthday, is actually relatively unusual. Uh, But all previous studies have tended to look at uh, specific sorts of psychosis like schizophrenia or depression, um, or severe depression. Um, So it's quite difficult to see how common psychosis as a whole is, and we were very curious about that, so that's why we did this study. Um, But thinking about adolescence, of course it's a very stressful time. There's lots of things that we're expected to achieve during adolescence, like growing up passing lots and lots of endless exams, um, having a first boyfriend or girlfriend, being more independent, moving away from home. Um, So you would expect it to be a time when uh, your mental health would be under more stress. But I think because psychosis is a very serious mental illness, that yes, it can be uh, brought on by all these stressful life events, I suppose, during adolescence, but it only actually becomes increasingly common as you move into your late adolescence and early adulthood, when you'd you'd be more likely to expect to have psychosis. So although a lot of people would expect there to be a very high rate of psychosis at this time in people's lives, people are moving from childhood to adulthood, it's a transitional time, it's a very stressful time, actually the rate of psychosis is perhaps not as high as people might expect. Yes, certainly. Um, The onset for psychosis is much more common really into the late teens and into early adulthood in the the 20s. And the overall rate of psychosis is about 1 or 2% within the whole population. And it's certainly a lot less for younger adolescents. And for actual children, it's actually extremely rare indeed. So let's first of all think about what you're referring to as adolescence. Because in your study, how did you define adolescence? Well, we were looking at adolescence, as you say, as a time of transition between childhood and moving into adulthood. And for our study, we uh, wanted the the young people to have had a psychotic episode prior to their 18th birthday. Um, And... I think the youngest person became unwell uh, just after they turned 10 years old, but the majority were somewhere between 12 and just before their 18th birthday. And your study is focusing on um, adolescent-onset psychosis. When you're referring to, to the notion of psychosis, what kind of disorder are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a very serious mental illness. Um, all of these uh, young people have had contact with the mental health services for this, their psychotic illness. And the kind of things we'd be thinking about would be um, hearing voices, we'd call that auditory hallucinations, or having very bizarre and unusual thoughts, we'd call that delusions. Um, and we would be looking in a really quite a marked change in the behaviour. Some people might say the personality uh, of the young person person uh, and those that know the young person and live with them and work with them at school perhaps would, would notice some form of change in the young person. The young person themselves may think that there's something up but they may not think that they're unwell um, so we're really reliant on those round about them to help identify these young people. 
Given that the teenage years are, are a difficult time and often uh, people's personality is changing, I would have thought it sometimes might be quite difficult to spot psychosis at that time. A parent might think of a, of a child who's become very withdrawn or very moody as going through a sort of natural teenage phase, whereas actually it could be the onset of a serious mental illness. Yes, I think it is extremely difficult to tell sometimes, and that's why sometimes young people that we see, by the time they make us make it to clinic to see us, they're extremely unwell and it's obvious what's going on. But we may get a story from their parents that shows that they've been withdrawn and unhappy, not taking part in things and not achieving their usual things for really several months or even up to a year or more. Um, Although it was interesting in our study, um, when we looked at things, we actually kids tended to be brought to the clinic fairly fairly quickly so I think parents are actually pretty good at spotting when there is a change um, in their young person and they know they've got experience of other young people and what would be normal adolescence as you would call it. So in your study you're looking at people or young people who'd made contact with psychiatric services. How did you go about conducting the study? Well, there were really three phases to the study. Um, The first one was trying to find out how many young people there were in the first place. Uh, And we approached um, the national and local case registers that have records of all the young people who've had contact with services. And then we also approached local clinicians to say, you know, are there any more children or young people on your list that we've not been able to identify? Can you help us out here? And we did actually have to get information from all three three sources um, to identify, we hope, all of the young people within the study area. So that was the first phase. And then we looked at the case notes of all the young people who we thought would probably have had psychosis. And we used a a special checklist of symptoms in comparison with the case notes to see whether uh, they met our criteria. So those that did meet our inclusion criteria, and there were just over 100 young people, um, we then approached their uh, current mental health physician or uh, their general practitioner or their social worker, whoever we had as a current contact person, to say, can we have contact with this young person? Uh, And we were lucky enough to be able to really quite assertively follow them up to try and find them uh, with the kind of um, approval we had. It was called an opt-out design. So the young person could get in touch and say, look, no, I really don't want contact with you. Um, But if we didn't hear anything, we could go and knock on their door and say, look, would you like to take part? We'd like to know how you're getting on. So if and when the young person said, yes, um, you can interview me or my, my uh, carer, uh, we would then go on and do an interview with them using a needs assessment schedule and where we asked them lots and lots of questions about how they were getting on just now and the kind of care that they were receiving. So could you give us some kind of sense of the kind of person we're dealing with in terms of the kind of way they might have presented? Give us an example, let's say, of a case history, a typical case history, uh, what the young person would have done, their behaviour, and how they would have come into contact with psychiatric services. Right. I suppose a typical case would be male, because um, over three quarters of these uh, young people were were young men. Um, And they might have uh, been uh, fairly successful before becoming unwell. They might have had one or two friendship difficulties but not doing too badly. They may have had one or two problems with their behaviour or uh, had difficulties reading, something like that. Um, But then over a period of time, maybe several weeks, their carers would have noticed them becoming more withdrawn, taking to their bed, not going out with friends when they were asked, certainly not showing the same initiative or motivation that they used to have. 
And then they might have started acting in quite bizarre ways, uh, maybe collecting things in an odd way or saying um, things that were really difficult to believe and other people just couldn't believe with it, agree with at all uh, and actually might um, have beliefs that think that people that are, are close to them are actually persecuting them or spotting odd things in the street. Uh, and that might go um, proceed into really quite unusual behaviour. Um, the kind of uh, people that problems that people presented with were sometimes actually aggression, unfortunately, that was quite out of character um, or not looking after themselves and also, like we say, social withdrawal. Um, and then their carers would tend to take them to their general practitioner usually or to accident and emergency department uh, and then eventually they would make it to a child and adolescent specialist service. And what were your main findings of your study? I'm particularly interested in what way adolescent onset psychosis seemed to differ from psychosis uh, that adults experience. Right. Well, I suppose the main finding is it's much more unusual than adult onset psychosis. Um, we found our, uh, one of our main findings was that the, the three-year prevalence, so that means how many young people were unwell during a three-year period, was about um, almost six per 100,000 of the general population. So that's not very many. In real terms, that means a handful of kids per local area. Um, we also found that they continue to have really quite um, general problems with their functioning. Over half of them were really struggling, actually, and that would be from anything to do with uh, friendships. Lots and lots of them had real problems and were unhappy with their friendships. Um, problems with family functioning, people not communicating as well as they might have been. Um, they may have had problems going out and about on their own. They may still be hearing voices. We, I was quite surprised that a third of them were actually actively psychotic and having symptoms when we saw them, lots of anxiety, lots of problems with lack of motivation and initiative, um, and a small handful of them actually voicing, voicing thoughts of wanting to be dead or wanting to harm themselves. Um, so these were the main kind of difficulties that they were having, and also one thing that particularly concerned us was that they, a lot of them weren't actually doing anything that was structured during the day. Almost a third of them said they had absolutely nothing to do during the day. Um, so, And then the second most common thing for them to be doing was attending a mental health day unit. So you can see that actually quite a lot of them aren't really back in the mainstream where we would really like them to be, and that would be a real marker of, of proper recovery. Um, but I suppose on a positive note, actually, we were quite struck when we were, we were talking to these young people, and as I've been struck previously in my clinical work, um, at the resilience that some of these families show. Um, and that maybe doesn't come through in the studies when we're just looking at numbers and things, but there were many stories of tremendous resilience and really creative ways of coping with really appalling um, difficulties. So it may not show up in the numbers, but actually there's a lot of uh, human strength and fortitude, uh, fortitude hidden away in there. But if a third of them were still experiencing mm. active sort of psychotic mm. symptoms, mm. like hearing voices, for example, I mean, that's very worrying. Mm -hmm. Is that telling us something about the nature of a psychotic illness if it starts early in life? Was that telling us something about the very, perhaps, poor treatment that adolescents get? Was there any sense of that from your study? Um, I th gosh, that's one of these multi-million dollar questions, thank you. Um, I think it's difficult to say. Um, I think one third of them hearing voices at the time when we saw them was actually very high. Um, we were seeing them relatively early in the course of their illness, so you would maybe expect there to be more sort of illness activity, if you like. They would also be at a stage in their illness when they were the, the doctors that are working with them would be still be trying to find the right treatments that suit them. And certainly when we went on to look at the kind of care that people were receiving, the actual level of, of input for things like psychotic symptoms is actually pretty good going. 
going, actually. So they were getting reviews by psychiatric nurses, psychologists and doctors um, to check out on these kind of things. But actually, I think sometimes in the early stages of illness, it does take quite a long time to find a, a system that works for these young people. But I thought that one of the conclusions of your paper was to mm. raise questions about the standard of care that adolescents mm. were getting. For example, a lot of adolescents weren't actually being admitted to adolescent units. Yeah, that was certainly something that we did find. I would say that the care provision that we found was actually very patchy. It was pretty good going for what we call medical care, the kind of thing I've just been discussing, but not so good for social interventions. And certainly, I mean, the vast majority of these young people were admitted to hospital for inpatient care at some stage, and 80% of those first admissions were not to a specialist adolescent unit, which we found really pretty alarming. Uh, And certainly um, is at odds with good practice guidance lines uh, and, and um, what we would like for these young people. It sounds as if there might be a major problem in this country in terms of the provision of adolescent uh, inpatient units for psychotic illnesses. I mean, certainly there was a very large study done by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the NICAPS study, uh, that looked at the uh, level of provision for young people, and they found similar levels of young people being admitted to adult wards. And they they found that the main reasons were either lack of access to a bed or that young person being... Uh, refused admission to the specialist uh, unit. Um, Our study didn't specifically look at the reasons why the rates of admission to adult wards were so high, Um, but certainly we can refer to other studies like the Royal College work um, and see what reasons they found. And within Scotland, where this study was done, there's been um, a major report sponsored by the Scottish Executive looking at inpatient provision for adolescents and children, and they've very clearly recommended an increase in the provision for for these beds. But adolescents um, developing a psychotic illness will often be living at home with their parents, and it just makes intuitive sense that often a kind of family-based intervention would be very important, family therapy. Mm-hmm. And again, I thought your paper raised a question about whether there was adequate provision of family intervention in terms of what the services could provide. Yes, I mean, for the family relationships area, when we examined that, it was one of the worst areas for provision, um, which was very disappointing because there's actually been quite a lot of research done that would show that um, family education and family work, looking at ways of coping um, in those early stages of psychosis can make a real difference to short and medium term outcome for these young people so we were really disappointed to see the poor level of provision for family interventions. But I also thought that one of the other things that came through from your paper was a a serious problem that seemed to uh, arise for adolescents around their relationship with peers and friends. We know friendships are very important at this time of one's life. Yeah. Yeah we found that over 80% of them were saying they had severe problems with friendships which, um, that, and actually when I was doing the interview with the young people that was one of the most touching points uh, in the interview, they spoke very um, warmly of the friendships that they had lost and how unhappy that made them, um, so that was a particular area that they picked up on and when we compared this group of young people with a group of young people that were studied right across by the Office of National Statistics right across the Great Britain we found that there was a fourfold increase in the problems with friendship which was pretty significant stuff for these young people. 
Now, you're working in an adolescent unit. You've just been mm. recently appointed as a consultant mm. uh, working at the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. Why have you chosen to work uh, in this particular area? Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I'm, I used to work in the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. I've just moved to the West Lothian area. Um, I've always found working with adolescents and young people very fascinating. Um, if you're interested in surprises and finding out about how human beings tick, um, then working with adolescents is a place to be. Um, I'm particularly interested in working with families because I've always very strongly felt that the the patient or the person who comes to us with with the problem um, is always intricately involved in the web of people around about them um, and their families and their friends uh, and in their society and schools and I think a point of adolescence is where that's most at play uh, and where you really have to work with the whole system around about the young person to to have an effect and I find that approach to work very interesting and I've always been very very interested in the first contact with mental health services for young people uh, and those with psychotic illnesses may well go on to have years and years of contact with the mental health services and I've always felt that if you can make their first contact uh, a less traumatic experience then I think you've maybe done some good Um, and you can do a lot of educational work with families at that time that's always very satisfying. Going back to your study what was the thing that surprised you most in terms of the findings? Uh, Well, what surprised me most about our findings was, I think, just the high levels of continued disability um, and even in some areas where actually the care provision had been very good and they had been offered every possible intervention you could think of for the, the problem, they continued to have difficulties uh, and I think that surprised me, I think I had gone into the study um, taken by the fortitude and resilience of these young people and I suppose it was um, made me warm to them even more, I suppose, to realise the the level of continued disability they have and also uh, increase my passion to uh, provide um, the complex care that these kids need. Um, I think it was a real eye-opener to see how complex their needs are. Dr Leanne Boeing, thank Mm. you very much indeed. Thank you. Joining me here at the headquarters of the Royal College of Psychiatrists at number 17 Belgrave Square is Professor John Gunn, an emeritus professor of forensic psychiatry, uh, formerly based at the Institute of Psychiatry. Uh, Now, there's a paper published in the Bulletin of the uh, January edition of Psychiatric Bulletin, which is a conversation between John Gunn and Dr. Adrian Grounds. A wide-ranging conversation uh, reviewing uh, Professor Gunn's uh, illustrious career. So, John, let me start by asking you, how did you get into psychiatry in the first place? Oh, it's a long story. Um, I was interested in psychiatry at school because the headmaster I had uh, tried to ban it as a discussion topic at one of our uh, science meetings. Um, So when I went to medical school, I had some previous interest, but as I'm somewhat aged now, uh, people are perhaps not aware that there was almost no training in psychiatry uh, for medical students at that time. So one or two of us who were interested had to sort of go and hunt for it ourselves, which we did. And then when I qualified, I began to think of other things like general medicine, general surgery, uh, and so on. But my first love became uh, an option when I was offered a post on the newly formed uh, academic psychiatric department at the uh, University of Birmingham. I want to go back to uh, your experience at school because, in fact, you had arranged for a discussion of Freud to occur. Yes. And yet the headmaster didn't want to read out this notice about, the, about Freud because he was very anti-Freud. And that's the thing that seems to have got you really interested well, in the subject. 
Yes, well, I mean, he did the classic thing that teachers shouldn't do. He said, you shall not read that book. So everybody was down the public library that week to read Freud. And I still can't see what he found so offensive about it. I think it mentions the word sex a few times. And I can't think of any other reason why he banned it. But it did interest me. Um, I remember reading... Uh, little bits but the thing that sticks in my mind was the psychopathology of everyday life because that rang a bell and immediately I thought ah this is interesting it's difficult perhaps to recall but back then it sounds as though the image of psychiatry if people were thinking of choosing psychiatry was very dominated by Freudian ideas then not really no Um, this was just that we had someone in the school who'd been reading a lot of Freud for his own interest and he wanted to talk to the science society about it and uh we were not allowed to do that. And I didn't even know who Freud was until that moment. I was preparing to listen to this man, or this young man, and hear him, um, but we weren't allowed to do so. We all, so we all trooped off to the library to read it up for ourselves. What about your exposure to psychiatry at medical school? Did that uh, have any influences upon you? Yes, it was very poor. We had compulsory Saturday morning sessions at the local mental hospital, at All Saints in Birmingham, which were really could be quite frightening experiences. I remember on one of those Saturday mornings, I was locked into a quite disturbed ward full of patients, deluded and hallucinated, and uh, left on, suddenly realised I was left on my own. There were no nurses in the room. I was just on my own. I'd been told to talk to a patient in the corner and find out what was wrong with her. Um, and... It was really very unsatisfactory. The best thing that happened to me as a medical student was I put down for a, an option to go and spend a week at the Ufcom Clinic, which is still in Birmingham. And uh, it was then run by John Harrington. And uh, he had all sorts of interesting ideas about how you should treat neuroses. And the people that came to the Ufcom Clinic were not compulsory patients at all, or those with severe mental illness. They were those with common or garden neuroses, anxieties, depressions, and so on, which uh, psychiatry has tended not to focus on primarily, I think, ever. But he did, and he got some very good results. And I was very impressed with, A, his work, and B, the interesting patients he had. So it sounds like he was kind of an inspiring teacher, that mm, you were was. really interested. Yes, he was. But then you went on to choose forensic psychiatry. Why was it that uh, it was the psychiatry of people who've broken the law, offenders, that actually uh, drew your interest? Oh, that's further down the track. The first thing, after I decided that I... I had 18 months as a, as a SHO in Birmingham, and I decided then I should get a proper training and come to the Maudsley. So I came south, and I was lucky enough to get in, and I was put on the, the rotation at that time, and I did my general training. And I had no idea what kind of psychiatry I was going to do when I started. And I very nearly, as I'll explain perhaps in a moment, or it's in the article, um, ended up doing uh, psychiatry of old age. But in fact, one of the things that really um, interested me was uh, came out of a bit of moonlighting, really, um, I used to do various things like general practice, but one of the things I did was to run a group for alcoholics who were all ex-prisoner alcoholics uh, for a, with a friend of mine or with a man who became a close friend of mine, Tim Cook, who, who had developed this hostel for these men, and uh, Gethin Morgan, who became professor of psychiatry in Bristol, and I used to go down there to do these group sessions. 
and I came, became very interested in these people and their stories and the difficulties of helping them. And Tim had been a prison governor, and he taught me a lot about, uh, told me a lot about uh, work in prisons. And really, I became fascinated, so much so that I asked to join the forensic uh, component of the rotation. But as was the wont with the Morsey in those days, it was the one thing I didn't get onto. So I never got any forensic training as a registrar. Um, and uh, when I finished my registrar training, I had then, by then, developed a very clear view that I wanted to do research. And I preferably wanted a job in the institute where I could do research. And I looked around for various research posts without any luck. Um, but uh, Martin Roth, who sadly has just died, um, offered me a post in Newcastle uh, looking into the... Um, problems that he was interested in, in patients of elderly patients. Uh, this wasn't entirely unexpected as I'd taken a strong interest in the uh, ward for elderly patients under Felix Post down at Bethlehem while I was a trainee. So I was quite interested in that and I was very tempted to go there. But Aubrey Lewis, who I also had got to know at that time very well, really rather countermanded that and said that I should uh, stay in London and that there must be a job in the Institute for me. Uh, and I said that I'd been around all the places. He said, have you tried forensic? I said, yes, I've tried that. Oh, well, go back and talk to them again. And uh, the next day I didn't have to, because Trevor Gibbons, who was then running the uh, forensic uh, department, or section as it was then, uh, came up to me in the canteen and said, uh, I overlooked that we have a post that uh, we could possibly offer you if you were interested. So. That was it. It was my first post-diploma, uh, post, um, and it was my first step into proper research because it was a full-time research post looking at the problems of epilepsy in the prisons. So, if that uh, job hadn't been, shall we say, arranged for you at the last minute, you might, you might never have done forensic psychiatry. No, I might have been a psychogeriatrician and probably enjoyed myself just as much, but um, I've never, ever regretted the specialty I chose. I want to go back to that group that you were running. What was it about those, those people, and you said their stories, what was it about them that fascinated you? Well, <clears throat> their stories were really very tragic, and they also showed certain characteristics that you don't come across in your early years of training, I think. The difficulties of empathy, the... They almost all were people who could not relate to other human beings at all. And many of them actually preferred to live alone on the streets of London. And they were happiest when they were drunk. All of these things are really outside of ordinary experience. They were certainly outside of my experience. And so I began to be really interested in their stories. And I suppose that the thing that brought me up sharpest was one day I'd finished the group, and one of the members of the group came across afterwards, which he wasn't supposed to do, but mem group uh, members sometimes do these things, and he said, uh, excuse me, doctor, he said, um, I just wanted to ask your advice. Um, I've been here for six months, whatever it was, and I've done all the things that I should do. I've uh, uh, given up drink, 
I've got myself properly clothed, I spent my money on smartening myself up, and um, I've even got a little job, and I've got a small income now. What do I do next? And I suddenly realized I had no answer, whatever. This man had no way of seeing beyond the uh, everyday sort of instructions that he'd been given, and he was following them carefully, and uh, he hadn't any inner drive to do anything other than he was told. And as Tim said to me afterwards when I recounted this little tale, he said, unfortunately, he'll be back on Skid Row very soon. And he was, within a month. Now, um, amongst general doctors, general physicians, psychiatric patients are often seen as a rather unappealing group of people uh, to work with or, or look after. Uh, amongst psychiatrists, forensic psychiatric patients <laughs> are seen as a particularly unappealing group because they're often seen as very difficult, but also um, a not, not very pleasant group of people. They've often broken the law. They've been antisocial. So h- how come you, you wanted to help this group of people who are often seen as, as actually very unappealing to work with? It's a difficult question to ask. I've often asked myself that, but I do find an immediate attraction to people who are underprivileged, have tragic stories, and so on. And I don't actually fully understand that, but it certainly is an attraction, and I really like working with them. I think the, <clears throat> the amount of uh, satisfaction from helping them is enormous. Um, so that's part of the answer, but you don't know that before you start. They are just interesting, fascinating, and they're, the fact that they're uh, rejected all round, and they certainly are, and they certainly are by our profession, um, appeals to me rather than the other way around. And unfortunately, I think we don't have too many people in the profession that feel that way. And if you're going into forensic psychiatry, you really do have to like people that other people don't. Unfortunately, I think we have quite a good collection of colleagues in the profession at the moment. Um, And that's part of the reason that there's often some tension between uh, general psychiatrists and forensic psychiatrists, because the two sides of that little discussion don't always understand the motivation of the other side. The other problem from the outside of, of forensic psychiatry is you often work in very unappealing environments, like prisons, for example, and you've mm. done a lot of research uh, about uh, or, or based in prisons. Could you tell us something about that research and why that environment interests you, why people who are in prison interest you? Again, it's difficult to answer. I'm, when we finish this interview, I'm off to a prison to uh, continue with my work on the parole board. Um, I was accidental. My first uh, proper experience of prison work was the research post that I was given to look at people with epilepsy. And I toured the country. I saw every uh, large, well, no, every prison at that time um, that uh, could possibly hold a patient with epilepsy. And that was almost all of them. Um, There's too many, I think, to do that now. But the, the prison population was much more manageable in those days. Um, the prison environment is in fact not welcoming and particularly in those days I think it's better now but in those days you were not really seen as someone that the prison officers wanted to have you uh, floating around they, they, you were a nuisance I mean you interrupted their routine you wanted to see people who they um, had to fetch and they had to 
escort you around the prison and so on. So it wasn't entirely inviting. But again, it's the attraction of the people uh, in this awful situation. I mean, if you see people in prison on a long-term basis, which is what I'm doing at the present time, you realise just how awful this is. And you feel, at least I felt, that things needed to be done to assist and one of the things that I was most struck by was the difficulties of rehabilitating some of these men after they'd finished their sentence, and particularly people with epilepsy at that time, where epilepsy was the sort of DSPD of its time. People forget uh, that these things come around again. Um, you, you mean it was the antisocial personality disorder at the time? Yes. Epile- I mean, the reason I was asked to do the study was because there was a strong myth, a strong belief that uh, epilepsy and violence were intimately associated and that many of the violent people in prison really had brain disorders and and had discontrol syndromes at the least or epilepsy uh, uh, at the best, I suppose. Um, That, of course, is is nonsense. But um, the, the... Casting around for funny terms which you can apply to people who keep on getting into trouble is something that psychiatrists have always done. Um, The stigma associated with epilepsy at that time, it's pretty well gone now, but the stigma associated with epilepsy, can't say it, at that time, meant that people coming out of the prisons with that uh, condition found it almost impossible to get accommodation. And so uh, one of the things I did after that piece of work was to establish a small hostel in Brixton, especially for such people. This went on to become a much bigger organisation for mentally disordered people, who are mentally disordered offenders, I should say, in, a, in, a broad, in broader categories, because during my career, the stigma associated with epilepsy tended to abate. I'm not sure that the stigma associated with personality disorder, or even worse with this wretched term psychopathic disorder, is going to abate so quickly. But perhaps it will. Things do change. Why is it a wretched term? Psychopathic disorder, Hmm. because it's stigmatising, because it immediately gives people an impression of horror and and, uh, someone who is nasty, unmanageable, someone who should perhaps be locked up, uh, something of this kind. It, it is a stigmatising term, and you, you've then got the problems of overcoming the stigma before you can even start on the management. But I also get a sense from the uh, bulletin article that you're a bit sceptical about diagnosis in general. You, 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 there's, a, there's a place in the paper where you say you don't like to use these terms. I know I don't like these terms. Uh, no, I... It's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because diagnosis is absolutely fundamental to the majority of medicine. And I suppose it's very important in psychiatry. But we've tried to narrow the diagnostic criteria too much. I think DSM has quite a lot to answer for. Um, the American manual that the American psychiatrists the, yes, use. The, the, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, as it's called, which was, in fact, originally designed to help research workers. And I think it probably does do that very well. But it's an ever-expanding kind of industry, almost, with ever-increasing number of terms in it, most of which have no basis in um, any pathology that you can identify. Um, It is going to be difficult to identify pathology when you're talking about 
the mind and abstract concepts, but I think we're nowhere near doing that at the moment, and most, much of the research into schizophrenia, for example, is an attempt to try to pin down some sort of physical pathology which will identify the syndrome. Um, uh, but I, I mean, You're grimacing, did you say? <clears throat> yes. Um, I'm just thinking of the 19th century and the, and the way in which physicians at that time had a much, I suppose it must have been 20 or 30 different types of anemia, which were all identified by the colour of the skin and the amount of breathlessness and the tiredness and so on. And there were all these interesting syndromes in 19th century books. But of course, as soon as the microscope, or at least the microscopic study of blood made it clear and the physiology of the blood became clearer, then there was no need for that. You could, in fact, uh, tackle anemia by finding out what was the cause of the anemia and uh, you didn't need to type it any other way because the cause tended to give you a handle on treatment. Another interesting argument that comes out from the paper is this issue about whether one of the things that influences our approach to forensic psychiatric patients um, is the presence of special hospitals. There's something about the fact that we have special hospitals here in Britain that seems to be very influential in in our view of forensic psychiatry. Yes, there is. I, I am very positive about special hospitals. Um, These are places like Broadmoor, for example. Yes, the special hospitals now, there are four. There is Broadmoor, Rampton, um, and uh, three, rather, because the, the two that I was thinking of, I'm so old, um, have been amalgamated into one called uh, Ashworth. Um, there's one in Scotland as well. Uh, they came at the beginning of the 19th century into England, or at least into the first one, was actually in Ireland, at, um, which is only now going to be closed down, and Dundrum in Dublin. But the, the English ones really were introduced because of the fear that patients could be found not uh, guilty by reason of insanity um, and uh, released to the public um, just because they were not guilty. And the Parliament wanted to have some way of restraining them and produced laws to do that. And the first institution where these people went to after they'd been found not guilty by reason of insanity was paradoxically the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. And uh, the governors there, who it was a private hospital at the time, of course, um, thought this extra income would be wonderful. But there wasn't many years before they got very fed up with having all these nasty people in their hospital and they wanted to get rid of them. And they put a lot of pressure on the government to build a separate institution, which the government did. And that first separate institution was Broadmoor Hospital, which is still <coughs> in, uh, at the, um, in Windsor Forest on the same site. That development, um, I think, influenced forensic psychiatry in Britain in a way which didn't happen in other countries. And it's quite interesting at the present time that I'm a co-chairman of a small European group which is trying to develop forensic psychiatry in countries that don't currently have it and trying to standardise training schemes in countries that do have it. And it was developed because other people came to Britain and said, you know about forensic psychiatry, show us the way. So in fact, although this is a tiny subspecialty, we do in fact have something to offer to other countries. 
And uh, the little group that we are developing in Europe is, is developing and uh, it's becoming quite successful. And I think the reason that the British forensic psychiatry system developed um, differently and successfully was because we had hospitals specially designated for mentally disordered offenders right from the beginning. Hospitals which have always gone through very unpopular phases. There's a variety of reasons for that, and they're now going through another unpopular phase, and government are trying to close them down, really. They're trying to reduce the number of patients anyway. You mentioned the government there. Um, what comes through from the article in the Psychiatric Bulletin is a sense that you've been fighting governments for most of your career. Uh, yes, I, I noticed that when I reread it, but um, I'm not sure that I recognise myself as a fighter of governments. I suspect most people in the government have never heard of me, and uh, uh, I don't think many people have. So I don't think that's a very, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't a very prominent role. But you come over as very sceptical about policy, government policy, yeah, and, often, well, and often antagonistic to it. Yes, you couldn't be a member of this college for very long, as a senior member anyway, without being sceptical about government policy. Um, the mental health bill uh, saga should teach anyone that uh, government policy on mental health affairs isn't exactly well informed. Um, and so we've had a, quite a number of difficulties. I suppose the big problem is that um, uh, forensic psychiatrists are seen to be in the forefront of the battle against crime, which of course is a, is a rather weird uh, way of putting it. Um, and they're also going to be very limited in the resources they're given because they are uh, dealing with unpleasant people. Now, I know general psychiatrists immediately say, ah, well, you get more resources than we do, um, because they've said that to me so many times. It's not quite true. What the forensic psychiatrists get are inpatient resources that they have control over, which is very limited. And as a result of that, uh, the limitation, as a result of that limitation, there are still large numbers of people who actually ought to be moved from prison to hospital who are still not moved. Um, I am very sympathetic to my general psychiatry colleagues because they too suffer very severe shortages as well. Um, but I don't think we should fight one another about that. Actually, government does not really uh, think much about mental health services at all. Now, you're supposed to have retired uh, back in, I think, 2002. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are for a young, a young doctor thinking of coming into forensic psychiatry. M many of them will be worried about the fact that, for example, uh, if a patient does something terrible that, that belongs to you or you're looking after, your face ends up on the front page of newspapers. This would seem to be a hazard that might put many people off doing forensic psychiatry. I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Yes, it is. Um, I should point out, I think, that m the mental health uh, um, in inquiries that you're referring to after a homicide has been committed by a patient uh, affect general psychiatrists as much, if not more, than forensic psychiatrists, so that it's fairly random whether you get caught in that business or not. And the college um, has tried over the years to try to persuade the government to stop these inquiries because uh, a variety of problems with them. They don't actually solve anything, and they do stigmatise, they do scapegoat, and so on. But, uh, and we thought we got to that uh, stage when a um, new system of uh, looking into uh, uh, these problems was proposed. 
but I don't think we really have. I think the need to point the finger and to blame and to scapegoat is a very powerful sort of human need, and government goes along with it because it's politically okay, might get a few more votes. Um, it, is a, it is an uphill battle, but I don't think that's particularly forensic versus uh, any other branch of psychiatry. Um, I would say to anyone who's interested in forensic psychiatry, yes, please, come. It's a fascinating branch of psychiatry. You do have to have this one attribute, which not everybody has, which is that you have to like people that other people don't like. But if you um, enter into the specialty, the, um, the, the treatment satisfactions and the things that can be offered to patients are really very rewarding. Um, and I think it is really... Uh, one of the topics of the future because there's so much more to understand about human psychopathology, particularly that psychopathology which is related to behavioural problems. Isn't there a burden, though, which is in particular the burden of predicting future violence, isn't the, the, the issue of risk, and the fact that often governments and the public don't understand the concept of risk? Um, well, I think they probably do, but, I, I mean, uh, yes, it's... <clears throat> It's, it's, it's a burden if you let it become a burden. The problem is the language again. Um, we don't sit down and make cold risk assessments and walk away, or at least we shouldn't, because that's not our job. Our job is to manage risk. And, we've, and medicine has done that since it first was formed. And when I first came into psychiatry... I was never, the word risk wasn't used and risk management wasn't an issue. But one of the first things I learned was how to deal with patients who were suicidal. And of course, you're managing a serious risk when you do that. And it, it was seen as part and parcel of psychiatry. And I suppose, so I've, I've always taught that it isn't very different to manage a suicidal risk to a homicidal risk. And if you use the same principles and you realise it's part of medical management to do that, you don't get so high up on what a risk assessment is. I think we've been sidetracked by a variety of statistical manoeuvres, which, to say the least, uh, can be unhelpful. Um, but the clinical practice of managing risk is a central part of all psychiatry, and it's certainly a central part of forensic psychiatry, and I suppose we get more than our fair share in our specialty of people who are a risk to others, um, although, the, as I say, the, the similarities between risk to others and risk to self um, are really quite striking. Any regrets? Any regrets? Mm. I suppose that... Um, I, I, it depends when you mean. I mean, when I started in forensic psychiatry, I had all sorts of ambitions to change the world and do all kinds of things which have not come about. Um, but <laughs> I suppose I wouldn't have been human if I didn't have those kind of vague and rather unrealistic ambitions. But no, looking back on the, on the career as a whole, I think um, I'm very pleased that that accidental moment uh, occurred, and I'm always grateful to Aubrey Lewis to, for directing me um, in that direction, one of my heroes, actually. Um, and uh, I, overall, of course, there are minor regrets, but overall, no. Hopes for the future? Hopes for the future. I think the, um, the, the big uh, development that's occurring is that even the prison service and the Home Office are beginning to realise that the problem for offenders is management and that there can be much more uh, 
working together between psychologists, psychiatrists, probation officers, and even police officers in managing the problem of antisocial behaviour in our society. John Gunn, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Joining me here at the Royal College of Psychiatrists at number 17 Belgrave Square is Professor Peter Tyra, Professor of Community Psychiatry at Imperial College London. Now, Professor Tyra has written a fascinating editorial in uh, January's edition of Psychiatric Bulletin, the title of which is The Place for Nidotherapy in Psychiatric Practice. So, uh, Professor Tyra, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Is it nidotherapy? That's right. uh, It is a long I um, because the treatment is named after nidus, the Latin for nest, and the notion behind that is that the nest is a very adaptable environment for whatever goes into it. It adapts to fit the shape of whatever bird or um, object is put inside it. And the aim of nidotherapy is to manipulate the environment to make a better fit for those people who have chronic mental health problems so that those problems are lessened and their function is improved. I understand this is also referred to in America as niche therapy and it really involves a radical change in one's approach to psychiatric patients. It's not about changing the patient, it's about changing their environment. Yes, we have um, consistently tried to change people for obvious reasons in, uh, because in most cases patients want to get changed. Uh, they've got unpleasant symptoms, they want them removed. But you often come across people who either don't want their apparent symptoms removed because they feel happy with them, or they've had them for years and years and nothing else has ever shifted them. They've had treatment after treatment, which has been hammered away at them, but they don't seem to improve. So for these groups of people who really have got a chronic mental health problem, then nidotherapy is an option. I understand that it was first deployed with people with personality disorders. How did it work there? Well, with many people with personality disorders, the diagnosis is almost um, a diagnosis of despair. Uh, The assumption is that people won't get better, uh, and therefore uh, one might as well abandon thinking about that aspect of their functioning. But of course it can dominate their whole behaviour. And uh, we found in an assertive outreach team that those people with personality disorders Um, many of whom are in assertive outreach teams, well over 90%, could be helped by an approach which was very different from what they normally received. Instead of being asked to attend for appointments or if they didn't attend, being seen at home and being asked to take part in treatment regimes that they didn't like, we said, all right, we accept that you're not getting any better you don't want the treatments we're giving you, let's look at your environment in all its um, respects, and that's not just the physical environment, but also the social and personal environment, and see if we can make some changes which make you feel better and also have a positive effect on society, because often the reason we see these people is because they're antisocial in varying degrees and cause troubles to society. Could you give us a practical example of how this might work? Well, one of the first patients that uh, we saw uh, 
who um, was subjected to this treatment was, was someone I met over 18 years ago, and she was a, a lady who um, was very um, angry and suspicious. This was partly um, because she wasn't able to bring up her three children, and one by one they were all taken away. So in some ways it was hardly surprising she was so angry against the system for taking away her children. But she was also uh, extremely... Um, um, resistant to any form of treatment and uh, she was diagnosed as having schizophrenia but it really seemed that she had a, uh, a personality which was highly suspicious uh, and which was somewhat limited in its um, expression um, and really she wanted to be left alone she was a, a somewhat schizoid person who really didn't want to interact with people this was one of the reasons she was bad at looking after her children but when we in fact placed her in a supportive environment where she had virtually no contact with other people, was only seen briefly for once a week for half an hour, and this was seven years ago, she's settled extremely well and has caused no further problems. And she's not taking any medication or, or anything of that nature. But the problem is, my experience of patients is sometimes that the problem in their environment is impossible to change. I have several patients, for example, who always seem to run into trouble with their neighbours. And they move house and move house and move house. And always it's a different set of neighbours. But how would one change the environment there so they didn't have neighbours? Yes, well, uh, and particularly in London, uh, I fully appreciate it's very difficult not to have neighbours who are very close to you. Um, well, uh, in, in many ways, we involve the neighbours as well. We, in, in doing this work, we try and uh, um, involve, uh, for example, in patient we're seeing at the moment, um, uh, he, in fact... Um, comes from the Caribbean, which was perhaps wouldn't surprise people because he plays music very loudly, and uh, his neighbours are very upset about this. But in fact, we've come to an agreement whereby he plays the music between certain hours of the day and not at other hours of the day, and the neighbours are involved with the uh, treatment. And in fact, they have got a much more positive relationship with him now, and he feels much more at home, which is one of the principles of nidotherapy, uh, than he did before. And you refer in the paper to people called nidotherapists. Who are nidotherapists? Well, nidotherapists are trained staff who are not, up until now at any rate, psychiatrists, partly because we did not want them to be operating, as it were, in the same mode as psychiatrists. They work independently of the clinical team, and their job is, is part therapist, part advocate, and they're... The task of the nidotherapist is to get the analysis of the environment uh, organised in a way which is sensitive to the needs of the individual. It mustn't be paternalistic, where unfortunately we have been paternalistic so often in the past, where we, we want to mould the patient into our image. We try and get what the patient needs and also try and work out a realistic set of environmental changes. Because, of course, quite often the initial set of requirements is quite unrealistic. And um, then, once that's decided, the nidotherapist acts as the, as the advocate and goes to the clinical team and says, well, this is what we would like. We're clear that this is a, a reasonable step forward. Can you help to accommodate this? And this involves quite a lot of negotiation with the team because often, in fact, the suggestions may be quite counter to what the team have believed up until that point. You end the paper by saying that um, psychiatrists who read this should um, 
uh, expect to see a nidotherapist coming towards them and they shouldn't cross the road and walk on the other side. It sounds like you, you fully expect psychiatrists to be very sceptical about nidotherapy. Well, we have had a certain degree of scepticism because obviously some people say, oh, well, it's just common sense. Interesting enough, other people say, well, this is the principles of a system um, therapy, family therapy, good social work. Um, everyone likes to um, claim some of the attributes of nidotherapy, but in fact, none of them actually specifically aim at just trying to change the environment in a quite often subtle and... and um, specific way they're they're looking at the person as well and trying to change the person Um, what is so interesting that we found is that the therapeutic alliance which is often so important with um, people with long-term mental illness is much uh, better served by the nidotherapist because uh, there isn't the sort of mistrust that oh the person's only being nice to me because he wants to um, introduce his own special brand of therapy which I don't want and he knows very well I don't want. They know very well from the beginning that they're not there to change the person and you get a much more positive relationship. And I think the, um, uh, the system that we've got of keeping the therapist away from the clinical team in terms of their treatment but, but also engaging with it at another level I think, well, we would like to think that this would become um, common practice in the future. Are you a nidotherapist? I, I'm a nidotherapist of sorts. The trouble is I'm, I'm a little bit impatient and I don't go as, uh, uh, as um, uh, systematically and as slowly as is necessary. I, I, I'm, I'm a bit impulsive and like to get quick results. <laughs> so how does that manifest itself, your impulsiveness? Well, I, te- I tend to get... Uh, set time scales that are really quite impossible for people and I, I get them to ask to, to do too much so I, I prefer to be a little bit on the outside supervising things and particularly helping with the liaison between our nidotherapists and our clinical teams. Isn't there a danger with nidotherapy that we are not expecting the patient to change and we're trying to change the environment for the patient isn't there a sense in which, first of all, that's very demotivating? We're not motivating patients to change. And also it's a rather fragile situation because the environment can always change. It's more precarious than encouraging patients to, to adapt to the environment. Yes, there, there is that danger. I mean, one of the obvious dangers is that you actually intervene with nidotherapy at a point which is really premature, that in fact a person has got a, an illness which is... Uh, treatable or time-limiting, and in fact you adapt to the persistence of the illness when it's going to go. And then, of course, uh, you may regret uh, what's happened. In fact, with the patients that we've tried it with, we know very well, and in fact, uh, in no case have we had a a clear change in their mental state. Um, But certainly the timing of when to introduce nidotherapy is, um, is quite important. You don't want to do it too early. Um, But the other point to emphasise, it doesn't mean that you give up on treatment uh, or looking at other treatment options when you're giving it, because quite often when things change and the person improves, then in fact they're more amenable to other forms of treatment, particularly forms of psychological treatment, where in fact up until that point they've been uh, antipathetic to it, they've really rejected it. But in fact when they improve uh, with some aspects of that environment, they may reconsider that. So um, uh, the nidotherapy is not uh, in um, uh, opposition 
to person-directed therapy, but it has to be um, organised in a way which it, so it doesn't uh, lead to conflict. And I think uh, this is one of the issues that we often have to use the NIDA therapist for in negotiating with the clinical team to make sure that um, that the role of the NIDA therapist and the role of the clinical teams are clearly defined. But isn't there a sense in which one of the real problems with NIDA therapy is it runs directly against a key concept at the heart of psychiatry, which is a notion of insight. And one of, one of the things we think about insight is a patient develops insight when they can look at themselves more objectively and they can see themselves the way the world sees them. So going back to the example you gave of the patient who plays the music too loudly, when you do your NIDA therapy intervention, which is about getting the neighbours, as it were, to cope better with the loud music rather than getting the patient to turn the loud music down, you're kind of colluding with, with, their, with their view of the problem and you're not helping them develop insight, which is a more objective appraisal, theoretically, of their situation. Well, the example you give that, that may be true. Unfortunately, as we know only too well, some people never uh, develop any degree of insight. And um, quite often you can get the same degree of insight. I mean, for example, we've used it in chronic depressive patients, dysthymic patients, who in fact um, have um, got full insight into their depression, but nothing has shifted their depression. But in fact, when they change their environmental uh, lifestyles in these cases, they often realise that they've had a lot to do with creating their depressive symptoms. So insight uh, doesn't always have to be lost. But certainly the, um, the most positive thing about it is that people who, who um, one habitually regards as with a groan when you hear their names mentioned at a review meeting become attractive to treat, uh, they become more interesting, they are more positive in their relationships. And um, th these people have had a, you know, uh, a pretty bad relationship with most of the psychiatric services. And it's very interesting and very positive to find a change in that. But going back to the example, because it's a problem that I, I as a psychiatrist, sees a lot of, that the, 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 the noisy person who, who the neighbours then get worried about, it takes a lot of work from a community worker or a NIDA therapist to, to get the neighbours in and get them cooperating. I mean, it sounds to me as though one of the problems with NIDA therapy is it involves a lot more work for the therapist. Well, it does involve a lot more work. It involves a lot more often constructional work. We've often uh, uh, put soundproofing in people's rooms and we've had to try and get extra um, money for that to be done. We've, we've got a patient at the moment who in fact is a, has an unfortunate habit of flooding his flat and disconnecting all the electricity wires when he's there and he's now been stopped from going to the flat. Well, we in fact now try to convert the flat so he can't interfere with electricity and the water supply is um, controlled in such a way that he can't flood it. So um, that involves quite a lot of money and hard work and negotiation with councils and other people to make sure it's done, but it's much cheaper than long-term inpatient care. So it sounds from this paper and talking to you today that you're very hopeful that more psychiatrists will become NIDA therapists in the future. Yes, uh, we have just completed a randomised trial of NIDA therapy and this shows that um, in this population, and this is the population of people who are repeatedly in hospital um, because nothing can be done for them and they, they're difficult to accommodate, is that we've reduced the 
admissions, the duration of admission of these patients by 50% compared with a control group who are just treated by the ordinary services and the team. And uh, so I think the attractions of the approach are clear when you are, try hard to um, find a better niche or nest um, you can save a lot of money and time and trouble uh, by finding that place in the community. Professor Peter Tyra, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.